This is Steve Balton. Welcome to My Turning Point, where we will be joined today by Gavin Rossdale from the band Bush. Dude, this is a fun conversation. Tom Waits, Wings of Desire, Charles Bukowski, Keanu Reeves. We cover a wide range of topics. Let's join in with Gavin. All right, Gavin, thanks so much for being here today. Dude, I'm excited to hear what you pick with this, because I really love this format, because... You don't know what the hell someone's going to pick. People have had such interesting life experiences. What was your turning point moment? Uh, my turning point moment, I think, was being about um, 14 years old. Uh, punk had already taken over. There was a revolution in England, a real revolution, you know, where uh, things were much more connected than they are now, you know. And um, my sister's boyfriend was in a band called The Nobodies, and there was a skinhead band. And um, he gave me a, a red uh, P bass, a Fender P bass. And I remember being in my room and the combination of getting the P bass and going with him to rehearsals, dark, dank, stinky rehearsal room in the south of London and lugging equipment in and sitting around um, in this filthy place and then driving the equipment over. And I was too young to go into the venues, but I just liked the whole buzz and being around it. And I just got the got the bug for that life, and <clears throat> I didn't think about much else after that, um, except wanting to be in a band and pursue music and be as cool as all the my sister's friends, all the punks that they knew. Uh, it was such a great scene in North London, and I just figured that that was a the only thing that I was really interested in, and uh, so that turning point has been given that base and realizing that I should use it for uh, my life. So how old were you when you learned to play the bass? Did you start right away? Yeah, I just fiddled around and, you know, would play it badly. And then I was in a band at school. And then when I, I went to a, a, a school for, surprisingly, I got into a school for very smart people in England. There's one thing my dad was really um, very insistent on. So I went to regular education um, up until I was like 11. And then I went to a, a very academic school. And I harbored this dark secret that whilst everyone was preparing for university college, um, I just knew that as soon as the, the doors opened, I was running into the arms of music and I wanted nothing to do with any of the um, authority or hierarchy that I had been used to and drummed into. Because it's pretty austere uh, life in those kind of schools in England, you know, called by your surname. You know, you're not very... Uh, you're... Uh, it's not a very personal experience until you go we have a levels when you um uh, when you're 16 17 you get to do a levels which is the more advanced that's when you become you they call you by your name and you specialize and i did french and spanish and english and all literature so the combination of learning lots of words and uh, reading people and that uh, the romanticism of those filthy filthy dark stinky rehearsal rooms i just knew that was for me all right so a couple directions to go on with that it's funny one now, as myself being an English major, I'm so curious. What were those books that, that spoke to you at that time that, that really stood out to you? Uh, my most powerful book that I, I studied at school was King Lear. Was King Lear. And just the idea that, you know, the journey of a madman, you know, all right, in, in, uh, in Lear it's uh, about a king, but it's just about an incredibly rich tapestried life. 
um, and uh, and the betrayal and the the intrigue and the suspense and the love and the devotion and the madness. And then um, from there, it just segued into Bukowski. It just dovetailed into Bukowski and Ginsberg and all of the, uh, all of the. Uh, I mean, obviously, well, Bukowski is not a, not a, a beat poet, but I did like. And then I did the tra- the the trek to City Lights. You know, that's the whole thing, and uh, all the beat poets. And I just, I like their their madnesses, and I like Bukowski's uh, simplicity uh, or directness, not simplicity at all directness, succinct writing. Um, and uh, so that's where it was all born. But I mean, I had a lot of, there was a, there was a Vallejo uh, in, the, in the Burning Darkness. There was a Spanish book, there was Zola in, in French, Eugenie Grande, there was probably that book that did it for me in French. And, and Spanish was uh, in the Burning Darkness and Leah in the English. But obviously we, we studied many books. Um, but I just, I just liked the power of words and I liked uh, people that were in terrible distressed situations i just never stopped being interested in that i still am mainly interested in that because that's real people well, i was going to say what i love about getting into these memories where you tap into the early influences and it's funny because i do a column for forbes called who i am where we talk about this as well is it's amazing to think of how much that stuff when you go back and look through your work as an artist still appears in there and so for you when you look back at your songwriting over the years I'm sure there are influences from those literature days that even when you at the time didn't realize it, you know, that now stick in there so much. So are there a couple that really stand out to you? Some of the songs that you've written over the years where you can feel that Bukowski influence or the King Lear or whatever it is. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, mainly the, the uh, for sure, I mean, I could obviously aspiring to, 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 to Shakespeare is quite a high uh, goal. Um, but I think that it was really the Bukowski. What I liked about him was how succinct he is and how matter of fact. He's so the deepest emotions, but in, in delivered in the most matter of fact way. And and then what you have with Ginsburg is this incredible, uh, colorful stream of conscious that I've really always been inspired by, probably the most. Ginsburg is the most present in all my writing because uh, the machinery of night is just you know it's all that sort of uh, it's uh, we're just cogs in the wheels of machinery, uh, which is in the new song bullet holes. There's cogs in the wheels of machinery. It's totally a, a sort of a Ginsberg uh, shard. Well, it's so funny though too because it's funny you said uh, talking about Bukowski first you use the word simplicity and then you change it to directness, mm. but it's funny because I think that's also something that as you get older you appreciate. Mm-hmm. Like of one of my favorite writers of all time is Raymond Carver, mm-hmm. and he was known for that simplicity. And and John Lennon as well, I think, is a songwriter. Mm-hmm. I've often used this as an example. You take a song like "In My Life," mm-hmm. it's a perfect song. And it's funny because it's one of those songs that everybody feels like they can write, and then you realize, but only John Lennon actually thought to write down something that simple. So it's interesting for you as you've gotten older, do you appreciate that simplicity in writing more? Yeah, because as we go through life and we get older, we realize that uh, other people matter less and less and other and extraneous words matter less and less. And what, I, what struck me the most about Bukowski, what I liked, was how direct he was. And, and you know, I mean, Paul Auster, as an American author, is probably my favorite author. And what I like about him the most is that um, his uh, sentences pack more than most people's paragraphs, and his paragraphs uh, pack more than most people's pages. And I like that, because who's got time for that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I like just cutting to the quick. Yeah, it's <clears> a great <throat> skill. 
And it's funny because when you are younger and you write and you think that you know you want that that flowery language, that that big descriptive stuff, but then you realize also mm. very few people actually. I mean, for instance, I was less inspired by uh, the words of you know Zeppelin and fairies and all that kind of stuff <laughs> as I was by just the gritty realness of Bukowski. What I always feel is that he was like the most uh, with a word version, the most incredibly reduced source to be the most full of flavor, and you know. Um, there's something to be said for a life of haiku poetry. <laughs> but so we're never going to hear a Bush song about fairies then? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting though. You mentioned bullet holes and I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, I mean, for you, that's got to be so satisfying and so fun because, I mean, this franchise is just exploding. It's on fire. And, you know, also, I, I think, I don't know, have you spent much time hanging out with Keanu Reeves? I feel like there would be sort of a kindred spirit thing there. Well, we, we worked together on Constantine 10 years ago, so I shot with him for a few weeks, and um, then I did some press with him, and I spent time with him. I really like him a lot. I haven't seen him in a long time, and I saw him at the premiere in New York. And I, I love him. He's just he's disarming, and he's a, I think he's a fantastic actor because he is just always... Um, He's, he reminds me of sort of his young Harrison Ford. He's just always in trouble. There's always a problem. <laughs> you know. And I think that's really great to watch. People have really liked that. I love Harrison Ford. He's one of my favorite actors. And he can be worried ordering a cup of coffee. It looks like a big problem while he's ordering a coffee. And I think that's uh, what, what makes you so... Um, makes him so magnetic, and the same with Keanu. You know, he was had such, you know, earlier on such big derision. You know, uh, you know, Bill and Ted. But he that was a great performance in that, and they sort of they the, the illusion was um, that he that was him. It's like no, that was him doing a great job as the the character in that movie, and uh, people get that confused sometimes. Um, so I think he did a fantastic job. I, I. Those necessary those those movies. I mean, you know, you can take some people like those big action movies or not. Most people do like them. It's just the most incredible example of that. Um, Chad, who uh, um, who directed um, the movie, of course, was his stunt double and directed all of his stunt moves and from the Matrix on. And so he directed me in Constantine. So it was a really great full circle and being back in, in, in business with them and especially when, you know, me coming into such a late stage and they've done all the work in these crazy big movies um, is incredible and feels great. I'm really enjoying it. Is it hopefully, hopefully it's still the number one movie all around the world. I hope so. Let's, 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 just, let's just hope it is. I think it should be. I don't know if it is or not, but uh, obviously it's 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 already the biggest earner in the franchise. Is it? Yeah, it is the biggest of those. But it's funny because you mentioned as well, you know, working with Keanu years ago, and I think that, you know, you mentioned the derision as well, and I think that's one thing that I, I appreciate in anybody, in any field, is as you get older, no matter how successful you've been, you mentioned Harrison Ford, he's one of the highest grossing actors of all time. He still had movies that tanked. And I think for everybody who goes through ups and downs, you appreciate these kinds of successes so much more. So for you, is it more enjoyable to work with people like that who are at similar levels? Because look, it doesn't matter who you are. You mentioned Zeppelin. You're going to have records that are hits. And then Rolling Stone called some of their early records absolute dog shit. Mm-hmm. You know? So for you, is it more enjoyable? And do you appreciate more everything that's happening now? And being around people who've had similar life experiences. Well, yeah, that's the. I mean, I would call that having a career, you know, because I think it's impossible to to uh, have a career that doesn't avoid the uh, the lows as well as the highs. I mean, 
Keanu's had you know some romantic comedies that, that haven't been as uh, successful. But what I loved about him, and I remember working with him on, uh, and struck me so deeply on Constantine, getting to know him, was that he just suffered the same insecurity as anyone in his show business, just making sure when's my next, what's my next gig, what am I next doing? This is the guy who'd been in the Matrix at the time. This is guys who's riding the world, uh, generally in a Warner Brothers jet, and was still concerned about that. And I think that what um, in, I found inspiring about that is that I, I totally feel the same way um, because I think that if you rest on your laurels is the day that uh, probably the phone will stop ringing. And I think it's that hunger and that desire and that fire that can't ever go out. And I think the insecurity is is part of it. You know, I find it a really intriguing job for me to be a singer. Um, just It's a very strange job. It's an ancient job. And you, you stand up and you sing about what you think and what you feel, what's affected you, your, your hopes, your fears, uh, your... Uh, um, your generally your journey, and so there has to be a sort of a bizarre blend of confidence to do it and do it with authority, and yet and enough insecurity that keeps you on your toes, so that every time you do it, you try and be the best version of yourself and try and out outshine yourself from the night before. And I always thought that the day that I didn't feel that that uh, compulsion, that would be a you know a day that wouldn't be so uh, good for me and. Uh, so now it's just now I'm in the sunlight because I got a record that's being well received and uh, it's uh, on in a big movie franchise. But uh, I'm full of, fully aware of all the times when you know you bring out a record that doesn't do quite as well, doesn't get the success, you know. Um, so I, I, but I do in a long-winded way. Yes, I do enjoy working with people that have had similar careers or ups and downs. Well, like you say, it's funny because you say it's having a career, mm-hmm. and that's what I was mentioning. Whether it's Zeppelin, whether it's Harrison Ford, no matter who it is, look at Neil Young. Yeah, Neil Young. You <laughs> have like the biggest songs you ever had. You know, Heart of Gold, and then he'll go on to to, to make Ark Welder. That's just sort of you know for aficionados. Um, or he goes between uh, you know Crazy Horse, and then goes back to sort of uh, you know banjo stuff and you know mellow. So he's always been really inspiring because he seems to be completely disconnected and irreverent to any previous success he's had. He just feels the compulsion to bring out what he wants to bring out, and I love that about him. Well, it's really interesting you say that because one of the things that I've enjoyed being at Forbes is talking with all these business people as well as the artists. And what I found is that for every successful person, regardless of the field, your competition is yourself. It has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with what anybody else is doing. So for you, you mentioned Neil Young. Are there other people, whether it's in music or other fields, that you've really been inspired by the way that they change direction and that that drive that... Because again, for every successful person, your drive is is only about challenging yourself. It's mm-hmm. not about, okay, well, we need to have a number one record now, or it's not about, well, we want to make this amount of money now. You want that, but you want that because you want to push yourself and you want to feel something new and exciting and challenging. Absolutely. So for you, who are those people who really, besides Neil Young, are there others that you think of? And it could be people in your daily life, too, that, that just you feel that drive and inspiration from. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, my own drive and inspiration is just uh, maybe from my own upbringing and, you know, growing up with a single father who is a workaholic. That's a, that's a straight away, that's an example of someone who's applied and working. And uh, I had this, you know, in my um, first um, partner in music, uh, his father is uh, David Putnam, who's the uh, film producer and um, now government spokesperson, you know, he's a lord in the House of Lords and, and working on the Brexit issue. 
And uh, when we were kids and we decided that we were going to make this our lives, you know, he gave me the greatest piece of advice. And only maybe two years ago, I wrote him and thanked him for that advice because I'd held it clear to close to heart ever since. And he said to us, it's all very well and good you, you kids wanting to make music, but consider that Tim Pan Alley, those guys go there five days a week, they start at 9 a.m., they work till five and they write. So if you want to be songwriters, singers in a band, get your asses up and make sure that you work every day and don't be losers. And um, I've always took that to heart. And so for me, the, you know, it's interesting you, you ask about the fire. Of course, there are people around me that inspire, you know, whether it's, I mean, Bowie would be, uh, you know, a huge one. But really, as you say, it really comes from within. And I find that now having my own kids, you know, I keep wanting them to inspire them to be fired up to, to get away from Fortnite for five minutes and like, you know, read a book. Um, but it's very hard. It's, it's an inner fire and um, it's the most beautiful fire. But I think that if anything, it's, it's sort of sacrosanct. It can't be ignited by other people. It has to be um, from ourselves. Uh, which is why you have some people, it's not always about the amount of talent you have, it's just the amount of drive you have in addition to the talent you have. Well, it's interesting you say that because I've always felt that it's not about the talent. Mm-hmm. You, uh, uh, It's funny, I remember talking years ago. I mean, it's helpful. <laughs> it is helpful. I mean, look, I could have all the drive and ambition in the world. I have no rhythm, no tone, so I'm not going to have a music career no matter what. But it is funny because I remember talking with um, Chris Cornell, who I was a huge fan of, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you knew Chris for years. And sure. He was so humbled by the idea of being the voice and he pointed out you know in air quotes which people can't see because it's a podcast but you know people would refer to him as the voice in rock and he talked about the fact that everywhere in the world there's a better singer than me someplace mm-hmm. you know and i think for most artists a you need that humility but it also is the awareness of the fact that there is so much luck and ambition that that goes with mm-hmm. all of this and it's funny so you know we started with the my turning point and we are still going to talk about the tour with Ed mm-hmm. and live because mm-hmm. I want to come to that. But it's interesting when you think about as well, you mentioned getting the bass when you were 14. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the career point, I'm sure there are those moments where you felt it or you felt, or again, it takes a little bit of luck where something, you well, know, just right place, right time. This is a very Malcolm Gladwell-esque concept. Um, you see it in Outliers, you see it in Time, uh, where he talks about... Um, it's the confluence of many things. It's not just one. It's not one one thing. That you you know, so you have to tick many boxes uh, in order to to take off to elevate. And uh, what what's what's remarkable and, and and quite incredible is that I think anybody who's you know is talking about Bill Gates getting the access to Washington University to 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 look at early computers, you know, through a friend of his at school. And so had he not had that access, he probably would put his genius possibly to something else, you, you know, it's hard to say. But what happens is um, it's, a, it's many, uh, success has many fathers and mothers, we should say, in this day and age. <laughs> and, uh, and therefore, you just have to have all your own uh, eggs lined up. And then you just hope that you're surrounded by the right people. I mean, for me, there's so many things, so many factors that went into our incredible success off of the first record it began with the record it began with uh, the head of the label it began with uh, getting a tv show in england that demoed new bands new band clash and we got to make a video he, that person saw the video a friend of mine who's dj gary crowley he gave him the, the the had the connection um then coming here to america uh, losing the deal at hollywood records because they hated the record after frank wells was killed in the car uh, in the helicopter crash 
and uh, no singles, no album tracks on 16 Stone. So we left Hollywood. Uh, Ted Field hearing it um, on the radio, falling in love with the band, going in, getting distribution with, with Universal, uh, with Interscope, excuse me, um, and with Jimmy and with Ted. All these, and uh, then you have radio, uh, the power of radio, you have MTV. These are all the factors that what, what gave me the success, and um, I'm always mindful of that. So that's why I have people like Michael Moses doing my press, because I want to be surrounded by amazing people. <laughs> Even though we did discuss earlier the fact the publicists are as crazy as the comics, but yeah. But I love crazy. Crazy's good, as long as it's, you know, I had an amazing conversation with a, a man last night who I went to 7-Eleven getting um, someone some cigarettes, and I was, well, I was talking to this guy, apparently had an umbrella, and he's smashing the uh, a, a, a box, and then I, I walked in, and then he jumped up on the counter, and he had like one tooth, and he was very strangely dressed, and he had one tooth and an umbrella. Snaggletooth, we call it in England. And he asked me where I was from, my name, I told him my name, and he spelt it out. And he's, you know, he's quite on another level. Um, I think he's quite unwell, but but a lot of fun. And uh, he was, uh, and it just this, uh, it was almost like, uh, I don't know, Wings of Desire. It was like the, the that character, you know. <laughs> uh, he's, anyway, very strange. So you need, I, I think that uh, Crazy has insight. Uh, it often does. And by the way, since most people are not going to know that reference, Wings of Desire is one of my favorite films of all time. And so for everyone, you have to see this film. 1987 Vim Vendor's film <clears throat> with Bruno Ganz. Mm -hmm. And Nick Cave, by the way, is in it. So for music people, and it's a very young Nick Cave in it. So let's talk uh, quickly about the tour. Because okay. it's funny, you and Ed and I met up uh, not long ago at Live Nation. Right. Ed being Ed Kowalczyk from the band Live, mm -hmm. who you guys are going out with this summer. Right. So, so tell everyone about that in your words, looking forward to it. And it's 25th anniversary of 16 Stone and Throwing Copper. So it's a good time to sort of reflect on, on success. Right. I mean, I think that's a really useful way to, to, to present the show. But uh, for me, it's just like I, I love that band and, and I want to go out and play. And I, I I'm now feel like I should play mo a lot of 16 Stone. But, you know... Always looking forward as well, and and uh, it's just just a great great tour to go out. I think what what will appeal to people most is that along with uh, Our Lady Peace, that's a lot of lot of songs. That's an awful lot of songs that people know, and I think that makes for a great night and a great show. Um, I'm looking forward to it. We've now been doing some shows recently, and and I think we start up with them next week. Next week. Well, it's so funny you say that because when Paul Banks was on, he talked about the fact that you know they had done the 10th anniversary of Bright Lights, and one of the things he said was he felt comfortable doing that anniversary mm -hmm. because the band had, was in the process of making new music. Mm -hmm. And I think for every artist, it's so important to feel like that you are forward-thinking and that it's okay to sort of revisit the past a little bit when you know there's stuff coming ahead. So how much more enjoyable is it for you doing this tour knowing that when you go out there, yes, you're doing these songs from 16 Stone that people are excited for, but they're going to be just as excited for bullet holes. Yeah, it's essential. I mean, that gives the, the fire to it. And uh, I don't uh, su subscribe to that concept of like, we don't want to play the songs that got us here. And there was a time I saw a friend of mine in a really good band we toured with a lot, and he introduced their, their one hit as the rent payer. And I just thought... That's a little cynical. Do you, or is it? Or you could also call it your best song. 
<laughs> you know, so I don't really, I, I, I like the idea of uh, people getting lost in the history and the soundtrack of the music to their life and being intrigued and hearing songs that touch them now. So that's my job as a songwriter to write songs that like bullet holes that can coexist with uh, everything Zen or the chemicals between us. And, um, and then just putting it all out there. And I think that, you know, everyone, it's all a dance competition, whether, you know, life or being in a band. You don't, no one just wants to get tapped on the back and be told, thank you, you know, <laughs> sit down. So you just, it, you're just doing everything you can to be interesting and be as good as you can and be dynamic. So for me to sing a song from 25 years ago and sing a song from 25 minutes ago, that's a great feeling. I, I like the way that you put that, though, the, the soundtrack to our lives. Because, yes, when you go see a show, that is the thing. And there are these certain artists that you go see, whether it's the Eagles, for example, or some of these like classic bands that, you know, literally have 40 something. Like Paul Simon was like that for me. I mean, you're talking mm -hmm. about one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Mm -hmm. What was the last show for you that you went to where you felt like this was speaking to every aspect of your life? Where you just go through it and you're like, all right, I remember this from this and had that sort of, uh, it probably, almost like feels like a jukebox. Well, it's probably the last time I see you two play. You know, they have such a reverential audience in the way that he, Bono, commands the crowd and the, the eulogies for every song, and every song is almost an island, you know, between the, in the set. They don't just play song after song. It's, it's this incredible setup with these long, slow um, intros, and he has a way for everyone of just of, of working into your heart and uh, making you question everything. So that's, that's pretty hard to beat, beat him. Um, in terms of impact, so I would say you too. Although Neil Young's a damn good one too. Yeah, I haven't seen him for a minute, and I've saw uh, recently saw Neil you uh, two more recently. But Neil Young is just uh, on another level. I would I would love to be able to go and see Tom Waits if he was uh, ever consider going on tour again. He's someone that I that I feel a, a deep kinship with and just connected to his music and his um, him and his wife Kathleen's. Uh, extraordinarily uh, uh, um, dynamic and broad lyrics. You know, incredible words. I mean, he's a, that man's a wordsmith. And he's a completely different style to mine. Um, but yet I, I just love it. That He's so descriptive and time and place-centric. Uh, and I never deal in time and place. Well, it's funny. That's my vote for greatest songwriter who ever lived is Tom Waits. It's interesting, though, that you say he's so different from you because it's funny. He started coming up from the beat, the beat mm -hmm. time and the Bukowski and all of that. So it's funny. When you go back, are there any Tom Waits songs that you particularly feel like... Okay, I always remember an interview I read many, many years ago with uh, John Bon Jovi, right? And he said, <clears throat> he's like, if I could write any one song as good as any 50 Tom Waits songs... I would be happy as an artist. And it's like, I mean, it's Tom Waits. That's so a that's, stretch. That's a stretch. <laughs> it was his quote, but it was interesting because do you, are there songs in particular that you feel? Your love is like bad medicine. Whoa, <laughs> shake it up just like bad medicine. I don't know. I have well, to stop you there. I mean, it's, it, it's good to have goals. I say party foul. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's good to have goals, but it's funny. Are there, is there any song that you feel that, that sort of like, where you, you feel that, like you say, it's different, but because you guys had those similar influences, mm -hmm. where you feel that sort of kinship in particular with the writing, or you feel like it's... Innocent when you dream or something like that comes to mind. You know, it's just those turns of phrases that just like destroy you, that just destroy you and are so simple and yet seen from a different perspective, 
um, and inspiring. And uh, you know, absolutely no disrespect to, to John and Bon Jovi. They, they, so many people love them. And uh, I did love Howard Stern's uh, intro for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for them. And uh, they've had a phenomenal career, and you know, amazing um, in their in their lane um, for sure. But. Uh, you know, Tom Waits, and I think it's just a beautiful thing that he writes with his wife. I didn't get to the point of asking how much, what, which words, or how that quite works in the house, but um, he's such a dense lyricist. You know, whereas I feel that um, I like that uh, that thing of being dense, but yet an openness. And uh, my songs can't be as long as his. You know, I mean, you look at like, or Dylan, you know, Dylan, who like 14 verses, you know, we... I just never got, got into that point. No producer I ever worked with would probably have let me. So, um... But they're all they're all they're all inspiring, aren't they? You know, all the all the great the great ones. All right. So last question, because I've always thought my funeral song, Tom Waits, take it with me. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the it may be the best song ever written. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. I remember he was actually. I remember. Which one, reading, sorry. Take it with me. Okay. Yeah, it's an amazing song. <clears throat> and I actually was reading an interview with him where he talked about it and actually teared up. It's a song that he and Kathleen wrote together. So obvious question to wrap up. Your funeral song. Um, my funeral song would be um, probably Bob Dylan's Most of the Time. That is a fucking great song. And on that note, cool. Thanks so much for being here, dude. I hope I don't have to play it too soon. I'm having a good time right now. <laughs> I'm at a good point in my life, so I hope well, we get hopefully we're not it. rushing any of these. But you know, it'll still be there when I'm gone. Exactly, dude. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Hey, this is Steve Balton. Thanks again for joining us on My Turning Point, where today's guest was Gavin Rossdale from the band Bush. Dude, that conversation was a blast. So much stuff we covered. Hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to check out Bush on tour this summer with Live. And you've probably already seen John Wick 3, so I don't need to tell you to see that. Thanks. Say it again. Kiss, kiss in the